Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Vicky Kojavina Reynal of One Football, talking about the sale of Gloria, her app to One Football. She's big into women's soccer. Before we get going, you can sign up free or paid for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. We're just starting year two, and I've got big plans to cover men's and women's World Cups in the next 12 months. That's grantwall.com. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down soccer news midweek here. We'll have my interview with Vicky Kojavina Reynal in segment two, but let's bring in Witty. How are you? Thinking about doing a Kylian Mbappe style power play to see if maybe, uh, I don't know, Guardian <laughs> Football Weekly will take me or something like that. That was ridiculous. What was that? Well, Mbappe, there's not even any real specifics. I guess there's some, I guess, about things that he supposedly felt he was promised by PSG that he's unhappy about, but come on, man. I mean, you're, you're what, two months into this contract, this giant contract <laughs> that you signed, and you're already saying, I need, I want to leave. I want to leave. It's, it makes him look petulant, I think. Yeah, and I think it, it sort of uh, makes it seem like the whole thing this summer was, let me lock in the money, let me lock in, you know, longer years in case I get injured, but my plan was never to actually stay in Paris. My plan was always to try and move somewhere else, uh, whether it is Madrid or whether it is uh, to Liverpool. But it just seemed like all, it's sort of like uh, when Carmelo Anthony signed a really long-term extension in the NBA and the whole point of the long-term extension was just, I'll I'll take the money now, but I know I'm going to get traded. I'm going to force my way out. So uh, let me just, let me just get the money signed first. That was very strange. And also just, again, Paris can't go like six months without like I actually thought they had a fairly normal start to the season. And I actually right. was gonna think to myself, maybe maybe they could qualify for Champions League. They seem like a normal club now and they go right back to being a basket case. Well, we'll talk Champions League in a second here, but I'm excited to hear you're coming to New York for the MLS playoffs with Inter Miami. I may even get a chance to see you in person, which is always good. And Miami's in the playoffs. That's wild. Yes, and uh, finally, a home venue has been determined for this game. I joked uh, with some friends that, oh, maybe now that the Mets are eliminated, maybe they can play at City Field, but I guess they, they took me literally because they actually did spend two days dragging it out to eventually host the game at City Field. So not a Red Bull arena, going to uh, a baseball stadium to play this game. At least it is within the five boroughs, and, and, and it'll be uh, kind of fun that way. But yes, Going up to New York to cover playoff soccer. I believe the only time I've covered playoff soccer before was you and when you and I were in Portland for the MLS Cup final. So uh, this will be an interesting and different vantage point uh, on this Monday night encounter between Inter Miami and NYCFC. You know, I actually, you know, I make my calendar that's a public calendar of all the games on my radar around the world. And I have my own separate personal calendar, right? But what I typically do is the games that I think are must-see, I copy from the soccer game calendar into my personal calendar, and I have more games copied into my personal must-see calendar for this weekend than I have in a very, very long time. And that's because of a few things. You've got Liverpool-Man City. You've got Barcelona-Real Madrid. You've got playoff games galore in MLS and the NWSL. You've got uh, in Germany, Union, Union Berlin against Bayern Munich. Wow. Um, or Dortmund, sorry. And okay. you've got uh, Bayern against Freiburg. So those are the top teams in the Bundesliga. 
And so there's just so many games to watch this weekend, and I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot. There's actually a little bit of overlap between the Liverpool-Man City game and the Barcelona-Real Madrid game, which I think is unfortunate because those are two of the biggest games all year. <laughs> if it, I guess maybe the European Super League solves this problem, but there should be some kind of governing body, I don't know, UEFA, that sort of like gets the leagues together. Like, all right, you guys had big games this weekend? Let's not schedule them over each other. Uh, can, you know, maybe Liverpool City kick off at noon and El Clasico kick off at 10 a.m. And I don't know, they can they can figure out a way to organize this. But yeah, the, the El Clasico running over into uh, what has been for the last few years, the biggest Premier League matchup of the year. Um, I, I guess I'll be curious how, how people choose to divide their attention. But uh, that that kind of 45 minutes of overlap. I presume El Clasico probably went out just because it'll be the second half as opposed to the first half of Liverpool Man City. But I mean, that is a sensational football weekend. And the MLS playoff games, I actually think, are really well spaced out as well from a time perspective as well. So, uh, yeah, we, we I will be watching a ton of soccer this weekend. Yeah, there's a lot going on. And, and this maybe is a way to branch into today's discussion because we're talking on Wednesday around 5.30 p.m. Eastern. Barcelona has just had a 3-3, a wild Champions League game against Inter at home. And even though Barca was able to get a point out of this in the end, they are in dire straits right now in Champions League because this result means that Inter has the head-to-head tiebreaker over Barcelona, and that means that Barcelona is now relying on Victoria Pilsen to get points at Inter or Barcelona is out. And Victoria Pilsen is one of the great punching bags I think we've seen in recent years in Champions League, and I just don't see that happening unless Inter pulls just a giant pratfall. And that's a complete disaster for Barcelona, which had a frankly reckless financial strategy all summer long, and it was entirely dependent on getting the revenue from advancing in Champions League And if they go again straight to Europa League uh, and and don't advance in Champions League, this is going to be just a potential financial collapse for FC Barcelona. And that's always what it was risky of being. And that, for me, was sort of, again, the takeaway after they spent all that money was, are they sure they've kind of elevated themselves to that level? And that was, I believe, before... Uh, the Champions League draw, in which you're drawn against two very good teams. And this is the day at home when they were playing against Inter that they needed to win and actually probably should have lost because Inter had a very good chance to win at 3-3 that was well saved by Marc-Andre Ter Stegen. But like Barcelona did not, I think, in the final third, demonstrate the sharpness of a team that spent all that money. I thought Usman Dembele was pretty poor as they were trying to chase that game towards the end of the game. And Barcelona are in a really difficult situation now because, if, as you said, they don't qualify for Champions League, then you ask questions about what the future of this club is. And, you know, this is a club that I would imagine would want to try and go again and get Messi in the summer or, something, or, or do something of that level, go big again. And this was meant to be, we are going big. We are returning to our status as a big club again. And I actually think that they were probably better off on the steady build to go up. They probably could have stayed in the position that they are at or maybe even done better if they had continued to just steadily build and not try and almost fake your way into being a big club, which is what they've done. And now 
this situation is really bad. And also, I mean, you didn't even mention in that scenario, they have to win out, including a home win against Bayern Munich, which is no guarantee. Right. So I think relying on Victoria Pilsen to do your work for you is not not a good situation. Relying upon beating Bayern Munich at home in the Champions League, given their performances against the big clubs in Europe in the last two years, is no is no guarantee. For me, they're already as good as in Europa League. And that's fairly disastrous for what they spent all this money on in, in August. No, and we talked about it during the summer, and we said it was reckless in the summer. It wasn't just reckless. It was, it felt dirty how... Yeah how Barcelona and their directors went about their business. And and I said this then, I've always had a soft spot, an affection for Barcelona over the years. I don't anymore because of how they did things this summer. And I almost feel like this is a deserved result. And I like a lot of those, those players currently for Barcelona, but based on what their club did, I feel like this is deserved. And I hope it's a signal to other clubs, don't do this. Don't do mm-hmm. this because it's not good for the sport. It's not good for your club in the end or your fans. And it just, it, it feels the whole thing felt dirty. At least they're getting their just result, uh, desserts here, I guess, is the, the way to put it. Um, and, you know, I, I look also, they are doing pretty well in the league. So this is a big game this weekend against Real Madrid. But imagine if they have a continued bad week and lose that game then things could get really bad really, really quickly um, on a new level at that club. So one to keep an eye on. Uh, On the good side of things in Champions League, I want to talk about Napoli because Napoli is the story of the European soccer season so far. They have played 13 games. They have not lost any. They uh, They have won, I think it's 11 and tied two. And they have beaten Liverpool handily. They have destroyed Ajax at Ajax. They beat them again today at home in Champions League. Uh, They have won at Lazio. Uh, They have beaten Milan. Like This Napoli team is incredible. And not only are they getting results, they're doing it with this swashbuckling soccer that is making them must-see. Every week, every game. Yeah, I feel like they probably are the team that we haven't discussed enough. I, we talk a lot about Inter and we talk a lot about Milan, but Napoli are the team this year from Italy that merit your attention. They are averaging three goals per game. They scored 22 in the league and 17 in the Champions League, including four against Ajax uh, today, six against Ajax away from home, which was a record-setting defeat, three, uh, three away at Rangers, and four at home against Liverpool. It's remarkable what they've done in this Champions League. They are quickly becoming one of the contenders. They have a connection to North America in the shape of Chucky Lozano, who scored the opening goal uh, today in their home match against Ajax. And they are a team that are far more deserving of our attention now. And I'm actually going to kind of almost like go on a binge and like watch highlights of of their of their biggest games so I can kind of get to know them. I believe they have a, a, a winger from Georgia. Yeah, Kavicha. Kvartskela, I think is how you say his last name. Uh, forgive me if I butchered that. I'm going to have to ask my uh, Inter-Miami broadcasting friend, Drake Cordero, how to say that name uh, appropriately. But they have you know, a group of players where y- you look names on a sheet and you're not necessarily blown away by this team, but they've been absolutely fantastic in Italy and in the Champions League. And 
all of a sudden you're asking yourself, are they a contender? Are they going to be this year's team where they go on a run and, you know, deep into the knockout stages? And then all of a sudden you see all their players getting sold for hundreds of millions to, you know, the big Premier League clubs or whoever. But let's just enjoy this. Let's enjoy the absolutely effervescent soccer that they're playing. That for me, when that stadium is bouncing, I know that I know that stadium is a bit old. <laughs> um, and it's uh, it, it's got its history and its rustic rustic appeal. But when that stadium is full and bouncing, it's one of the coolest atmospheres in all of European football. And I cannot wait to watch this team continue to progress in Champions League. What do they call that stadium now on the street in Napoli? Do they call I think it's it? The, the I, think San... it's, I think it's I think it's the Maradona. I mean, do they actually call it that, or do they call it the so. San Paolo still? Like. I, I I don't know for sure. Again, I, I can I can uh, ask my uh, Italian consigliere's uh, Dre Cordera, Matteo Bonetti, but uh, I I believe I, I every time I've heard it on the broadcast, it's the Maradona. So okay, well I'm excited to see more of them. When you look at the sales they made uh, and the purchases they made in the off season, they've really gone about this the right way, and maybe showing everyone that it is possible to not just spend, 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 and still compete with these nation-state clubs uh, and much more fun, much better funded clubs that we see in European soccer. And that, if that's the case, if they can keep this up, that would just be such an important story. Uh, Spalletti deserves a ton of credit for what he's done uh, coaching this team. And we're still fairly early in the season. They played 13 games, but wow, what they've done in those 13 games makes you want to see what they're capable of, and, and maybe with the World Cup break might even help them, you know, because uh, it may give them the chance to recharge. You know, they have a few guys like Chucky Lozano who are going to play in the World Cup, but not that many. And, um, you know, the, the whole thing is just uh, such a cool story. Another one I want to bring up, somewhat similar, uh, Club Brugge of Belgium has advanced already for the first time to the knockout rounds of Champions League in a group that includes Atletico Madrid, Leverkusen, who else? I'll, 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 I'll pull up the, the, the standings as we talk. But yeah, I mean, well, I mean, Brugge is another one uh, that, that's been sensational. So yeah, so it's Brugge, Porto, Atletico Porto, Madrid, yeah. and, and, and Leverkusen in that group. But uh, Porto actually end the day in second, and Atletico Madrid are currently in the Europa League place. Uh, there are no guarantee, and they have not impressed at all in this Champions League, particularly losing away at Leverkusen and away at Brugge. Uh, their only home win was against Porto. And I think, yeah, it was two stoppage time goals uh, that, that won them that right. game. Atletico have not been impressive in the slightest. No, and, and, and Brugge has. I mean, they have not conceded a single goal in four games. Seven goals for, zero against. As I said, 10 points already have advanced. And they're... They have guys like Tajan Buchanan starting for them and doing well in Champions League. And that's another great story. You don't see too many Belgian teams advance in Champions League. And so maybe with, with Napoli, maybe with Club Brugge to an even bigger extent, you're seeing some of these surprise teams uh, that you know, usually the Champions League group stage is kind of dull and boring. And, and that hasn't been the case this time around. So uh, I'm very curious to see how those teams will do in the knockout stages and think they have a chance to go even deeper. Yeah. And it, it's fun. Like I, I do think that these same teams competing in the thick end of the competition does get boring after a while. And you want to see every once in a while, 
a Cinderella sneak in there. And, you know, Bruga are a team who I who have never qualified for the Champions League knockout stage. They're a sort of team that's kind of been a part of the furniture of the, of the Champions League group stage, but not really a club where, I mean, every once in a while, I think Ethan Horvath has produced a cool moment for them in the past. And uh, actually, Simon Mignolet is currently their goalkeeper, the former Liverpool goalkeeper. They kind of have some players that you recognize and they're starting 11. Dennis Adoy, the former Fulham right back, who's 34 years old and started for them today. But otherwise, it's always a team. I'm You know, Belgium is a place where young players go to develop and eventually get sold on. And so... That's sort of their like that's been their place really in the Champions League is they're not really always massively competitive. Anderlecht will give a team a run every once in a while, and Brugge will as well. But you're never really expecting a ton. But to qualify for the first time with two games left to play against some European heavyweights, Leverkusen and Atletico, and even Porto are a team that have qualified for the Champions League knockout stage a fair bit in the last few years. This is such an impressive run. And again, that's another where it's like, all right, I got to I gotta go back and do my homework. I got I to watch back their first three Champions League games so that I can uh, see what exactly is going on with this team. And is there also going to be a big sale of players? And it's really great for Tejan Buchanan as well, because all of a sudden he's going to be playing Champions League knockout stages. And you know that scouts will be attending those games and maybe they get impressed by Tejan Buchanan and maybe he's off uh, to another big club as well. So uh, these are these are really cool stories. Uh, the the two that we've spoken about, Napoli and Brugge. Most definitely. Now, another story I want to talk about here is the U.S. women's national team lost 2-0 on Tuesday to a Spanish B team missing 15 of its basically striking players, uh, which is a whole separate story in itself. But um, from a pure soccer perspective, a very dispiriting loss for this U.S. team. First time they've lost two straight games since 2017. And that part of it, I'm not as bothered about. I don't think there's anything wrong necessarily at this time of the the calendar losing some, some friendly games. And I'd rather the U.S. played top opponents in Europe than I would see them play Uzbekistan a few more times like they have this year. So the level of competition, I think, is good for the U.S., but they were also exposed. And Again, and I wrote about this after the game, the U.S. midfield, to me, is not set up right, and it hasn't been for a while. And Vladko Andonovsky, for some reason, continues to want to have a single defensive midfielder in Andy Sullivan and think that's going to be sufficient for that midfield to work, and it's not. They aren't possessing. They aren't creating chances. They aren't moving the ball forward. They aren't letting Rose Lavelle be in a position to show what she does best. And in my opinion, against top teams, you've got to have a double pivot. You've got to have a two in the middle there. Four, two, three, one is what I would like to see. If you do that though, then the question personnel wise is, do you yank Lindsay Horan? Do you use her as a six? Um, I don't know because Lindsay Horan is playing pretty well at club level for Lyon, the European champion. So I like her game, but I like her game more at club level than I do for the national team in recent months. And so I think there's a question there. I don't know if Andy Sullivan's good enough, but I also get the sense that Vlatko has seen what Julie Ertz did when she was at her best playing as a single defensive midfielder. And that's not possible with other players in that position. And so, by the way, Julie Ertz, I don't think is ever coming back. And I don't think Sam Mewis, from what I'm hearing, is coming back. And, and that's 
depressing uh, to a large extent, but it's something you also have to acknowledge with the World Cup not that many months away. Yeah, you have to play the personnel that can get you over the line in the World Cup. And I think the the one thing that a U.S. coach would be tempted to do is, all right, how can we get as many of our great attackers on the field as possible? But in some way, I mean, this is essentially like the Pep Guardiola formation, right? It's four defenders, the one holding midfielder, and five players in front of them that are given the license to play. But that requires two things. One is an incredibly sophisticated pattern of play that allows you to keep possession. And two, you have to win the ball high up the field. Because if you're going to spend the game defending, when you have five attackers essentially out there, then you're putting yourself in a very vulnerable position. And so I think at some point you have to come to terms with that one, the one that sits in front of the foreign defense, has to be an all-world player in order to execute a system like that. You know, you know, Man City have gone through a couple in Fernandinho and Rodrigo. Uh, you think of how Chelsea would play at times that way with N'Golo Kante kind of covering all that ground. And for the U.S. women, it's been Julie Ertz. She's been sort of singularly responsible for being able to make that system work. At some point, you have to acknowledge the reality that you don't live in that world anymore. You don't live in the world in which that one player can cover and the level of your opposition allows you to do that. The level of your opposition does not allow you to do that anymore. You have to compensate for the balance of midfield. You, you I think, at some point have to compensate for the fact that this team is probably not going to outpossess and out-attack their European opponents. You have to figure out new ways to win. And I wonder as well, you, you still have some influence from uh, the, the stars of the past that did it a certain way and are probably very influential uh, in speaking to Vlako Andonovsky and figuring out how they're going to set up tactically. But at some point, you have to acknowledge you're just not that team anymore. And that, I think, has been proven over several years at the Olympics, even at the CONCACAF championships, where I didn't think the U.S. were amazing in these big friendlies against uh, you know bigger opposition. I think they're gonna. There's gonna have to be a real come to Jesus moment with this national team because I I don't think that they are as strong as they have been in tournaments past, and their opposition has gotten better. And that I think is what you have to come to terms with, with over the next eight months for the World Cup and figure out how are you going to approach the World Cup with the group of players that you have, with the opposition that you have, and prepared to beat these teams at the biggest level because you still have in my mind a mental advantage over some of them because they're trying to overcome the US. So how do you make that mental advantage tell uh and and be solid and hit on the break and take advantage of your opportunities when they come your way? You know, a few things here. The one goal the US did score in these two games against England came from forcing a turnover deep and it didn't come from possession or creating chances out of the midfield and you can't rely on that. To or, or can you? Because I saw. I, I don't think I, you can to, I, to win I, the big I, games. I, I saw a, a, a funny observation, which was, I mean, this was in this is in some ways the U.S. Uh, eventually paying the bill for how uh, soccer coaches develop in this country. A lot, a lot of you know reliance upon physicality, uh, reliance upon the way in which. Uh, you know, the, the, the physical speed and height and athleticism are prioritized over technical skill and more precisely building out and how to play and when to play. And and I and and somebody pointed out, well, if this is who we are, then why don't we just play like Ralph Ranick ball or something like that? Four for two diamond, go pressing and flying at teams and try and create turnovers, play on the break, six seconds in transition, score a quick goal. Like if that's how they score, then maybe maybe there's a model somewhere in there. You know. It- <laughs> 
Why don't they hire Ralph Rangnick? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> he's managing the Austrian national team. It's not a bad he's, shout. He's not that busy with Austria. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I actually, I mean, if you went pure Rangnick, pure Jesse Marsh, I think that maybe that would be interesting. It might be a good fit, for, a better fit for what the the players that are there. Um, and that said, the U.S.'s best skill players, aside from Lavelle, are on the front line. And, yeah. and, and so you do wonder about that. I just want them to get the ball in, in positions where they can have scoring chances. And the midfield is supposed to create a lot of those. They aren't creating a lot of those. And it seems like it's a real issue. And you talk about several players being missing for the U.S. in these games, and I agree. But the, in the midfield, that was not the case. So, mm-hmm. I mean, right now there's some decisions. Are these players that- you expect to return? Because, like you said, Ertz and Mewis are probably not players you're expecting no. to return at this point. No, I don't. Um, now, the one saving grace for the U.S., I think, is a lot of the European contenders are a shambles as well. <laughs> probably a bigger <laughs> shambles than the U.S. Spain, despite this win, has huge, huge issues if they can't get 15 players to play. Even if Alexia Pateas comes back in time for the World Cup, she's already publicly supported uh, this action they've taken. Now that gets thrown into question, though, with Jorge Vilda, the coach, getting a big win against the U.S., and will that help him with his bosses and the public over in Spain and just continue the turmoil there? Uh, France, under they gave it, for some reason, a contract extension to Corinne Diacre, their coach, who has been, I think, miserable uh, at coaching that team and has you know, banished players who should be part of the, the operation there. And never won anything. So, like, I don't think France is in a position. They just got destroyed by Sweden, which is kind of the U.S.'s bugbear team that they always have trouble with. Uh, England is firing well. Germany obviously did well in the Euros. But even the European contenders, there's several now that uh, are in, in honestly worse shape than the U.S. with a few months to go. Yeah, and that ultimately is is a saving grace. Is you just never know how a team is going to enter a tournament. Maybe, I mean, the U.S. has some home friendlies coming up after the NWSL playoffs against Germany. Maybe those will sort of be get-right games and they figure out solutions to their system. But uh, at, at the moment, things have not looked great for the U.S. and they haven't for more than a year now. So I think it's difficult times. And, you know, I, I saw some people saying, well, how come Vladko Andonovsky isn't under as much pressure as Greg Berhalter is entering this World Cup? And maybe that temperature will get turned up over the course of time. But Vladko, I think, is always, he seems like a very nice man. He seems like someone oh, who... Oh, yeah, uh, nicest guy. Yeah, right, exactly. So it's like, who, who's who's going to dial up the pressure on him? But this is a national team that expects to win major tournaments and major and World Cups. And if you go into it not even performing well, then that can be a big concern. So uh, you just you just have no idea. Women's World Cup draw, by the way, taking place in 10 days. So sooner than most listeners might know, or maybe you do, <laughs> um, I, I fully expect uh, it, it's a 32-team tournament. So I'm hoping for some variety for the U.S. I'm hoping they don't draw Sweden. I'm hoping they don't draw Nigeria. I hope we get some teams that maybe the U.S. hasn't played before. But who knows? Anyway, always good to talk to you, Chris. Thank you. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Vicky Kojavina Reynal. Our guest now is Victoire Kojavina Reynal. We had her on the podcast in April to talk about the growth in women's soccer and her work as the founder and CEO of Gloria, a soccer community app. She has big news. Gloria was recently purchased by One Football, which named Vicky its vice president of women's soccer. Vicky, congratulations. It's great to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, 
So let's talk about this. This is big news for you. What does this acquisition and your new job mean for what you do moving forward? It's a good question. And I think it has many different answers. Um, the first thing I'll say is that one football's vision to bring together the football world, we'll say football now instead of soccer, um, is was always very similar to Gloria's mission of, of essentially building this large community of football fans across the world. And um, when we started discussing potentially merging, you know, our our efforts, um, it was very clear to me that one football was the perfect home for Gloria, uh, not only because of their incredible track record and their 15 years almost now running the business very successfully, uh, but also because we are now in a very specific moment in time within the industry where women's football is becoming highly commercialized, very popular amongst fans and is opening the door to a whole new generation of fans that have never consumed football before and therefore to capture this opportunity you need resources and you need uh, an ecosystem as big as one football to do it properly so to me it made a lot of sense to kind of make that move and and focus 100 of my time on women's football i mean that's the thing whenever you and i have talked women's football is is your passion it seems like I mean, obviously football in general but especially women's football and how does this allow you to focus on on just women's football and, and what are the things on your list that you want to do in the coming months another great question so i think that women's football is a very new product within the football industry an industry that has been running the, pretty much the same for a hundred years so now we have this new challenge ahead of us um, and we gotta consider the implications of that. And to me, it's really two things. From on the, on the first uh, part is that we can re-engage fans with a new product, right? So if you're a Barcelona fan, you can now watch your team twice a week. And that's very exciting. Um, and then the second piece, which is more challenging but a lot more exciting as well is new fans right um uefa released a report a few uh, months ago about the amount of football fans of women's football in europe and it was 144 million but from those 144 million 47 million are new fans to the sport people that have never watched football before and I think it's really interesting to, first of all, understand this new audience and then become the place that is going to onboard them because they don't really have a home. So right now, this is a massive opportunity one football has, and, and I'm happy to lead it. I realize that a lot of my listeners may know what one football is, but some may not. What What is one football? One Football is the largest uh, football media platform in the world. Um, they have about 100 million plus monthly active users uh, and an app where you can follow your team scores and, and you know, news articles. Um, they build a true ecosystem that touches, you know, every single corner of football, which is very exciting as well. 
Um, fun facts, they were one of the first 100 apps on the App Store. So they've been around for a really long time. German company as well, for those who don't know. Um, yes, they, they were the only company that existed when we started Doria as well in the football tech world. And, you know, when we had talked about what you were doing with Gloria, you were yet to launch the app. Is there a plan to launch the app within one football? No, there is not. Uh, the Gloria brand will be sunsetted and uh, the idea behind the Gloria product will definitely be um, rolled in into the, the, the app at one football, but not right now. Okay, gotcha. And since the last time we talked in April, a lot of things have happened in women's football, both at the club level, at the national team level. What to you are the most important developments we've seen in the women's game since the last time we talked? I think that the sheer global effect of uh, women's football is most likely the most exciting piece of it all. Um, we started, you know, speaking in, in April right after the 91,000 people showed up to the Camp Nou for that, you know, quarterfinals, Champions League match in between Barcelona and Real Madrid. But that really was <laughs> the first of many matches to come. Uh, and not only in Europe, right, because we had obviously uh, – Barcelona break their own record a few weeks after, and then we had an incredible final in Torino for, for the Champions League. Uh, but after that, we had the Euros, a massive success. But that also kind of pushed uh, that boundary everywhere else in the world. We had, you know, in, in Africa for the, the equivalent of, of the Euros over there. Um, we had Argentina, we had Brazil. Uh, where, you know, 40,000 plus people showing up to club matches as well. Same happened in the U.S. with two, um, you know, expansion teams with the San Diego Wave and, and Angel City, where they broke their attendance record. It happened in Nepal <laughs> for the final uh, of the uh, Asian Conference Tournament, uh, where they had the game for Nepal versus Bangladesh, which was the final in a stadium for 15,000 people and 15,750,000 people showed up, <laughs> which was crazy. Um, so I think that we are seeing this want for women's football, this uh, need for it. And it's not happening in the obvious places alone. It's happening everywhere in the world. And I think that is probably the most important data point because it, it really means that, you know, women's football is going to be growing no matter what happens at this point. You saw last week there was a lot of attention, again, on women's soccer. We're in a FIFA window right now. And side by side, you had on Friday night another sold-out Wembley Stadium, for a friendly between England and the United States. I was there for that. Second time I've been in a full Wembley this year for women's soccer. Um, pretty incredible atmosphere and evidence that this England team has won over their public in a major, major way and that the culture has changed. Um, and then also you had, just in terms of the football itself, 
England showing that it is closing, maybe has closed the gap with the United States. Um, and so it was a really interesting game from a football perspective. And then you add to it uh, the, the big news last week of the report, the Yates report that came out, uh, the investigation in the United States into systemic abuse in the NWSL. And that quite rightly dominated the conversation in the days leading up to the game. And one of the um, things that people said, both players for England and the U.S., is that they realized that you could have an investigation like that in probably every country um, and find things that are tragic, infuriating, whatever word you want to use. Um, and we've seen, obviously, evidence of this in different countries around the world. Um, what, what do you take out of that? What do you like? Um, and and how does it? You know, is that something that's necessary for us to go through as the sport itself grows and brings in new fans? I, the second I I read the report, um, which was not a surprise for me because we had the Athletic last year cover this in a lot of detail. Um, the first thing I did was I went and I tweeted uh, about it and I said, you know, if it's happening in the U.S., imagine what's happening everywhere else. And uh, the reality is that abuse and abuse of power is something that happens with women across every industry and football won't be an exception to it. Now, I do believe that this types of investigation and this attention from the press is very important. So we keep moving forward, right? Every investigation that happens, every player that comes out and speaks their truth is, you know, one step forward. And I think we're going to be seeing lots of those in the next few years, unfortunately, um, because it's, it's intrinsically a part of the sport. But not of the sport itself, but not of the experience of being a woman, unfortunately. Uh, and that is, you know, part of the, the work we do with the United Nations around gender equality and understanding how football can become a vehicle to, to move, uh, you know, not only the sport forward, but humanity forward, right? And that's, to me, the, the most exciting piece. Um, it is really sad, obviously, and it, it breaks my heart. Um, but I think that today women's football is becoming a commercial product. It is a financial engine and it's working and therefore a lot of people are paying attention to it, which can only mean good things, right? Uh, it means that this oversight that happened before where people didn't really care what was going on because that's that's really what happened people just didn't care uh is no longer there and is no longer um gonna make it possible for for the abuse to to go on so it's uh it's negative but it's very positive in the long run we're talking on monday october 10th uh, tomorrow, the United States women play Spain in Spain. I know you've spent a lot of time in Spain in the growing culture of women's football there. Um, 
What is your opinion of what's happening with the Spanish women's national team right now, where you have 15 players who are not playing, uh, including some of their big names, because they have issues with the coach, Jorge Vilda, they have issues with the federation, and the federation seems to be taking a very hardline stand against those players and not wanting to listen to what their complaints are. It's a very delicate subject, very, very delicate subject. Um, I believe that the U.S. was a incredible example of what what can happen when players come together and use their voice and their platform to, you know, instill change. And you could see a lot of the American players supported the Spanish players when, when they had their own run at it. Spain is a complicated uh, country in terms of football and its politics. It's been ingrained since, you know, many, many years. And it is interesting to see how they are dealing with it. Um, I think that obviously there's two sides of the story. Um, the players are clearly um, unhappy with the situation and the federation is, you know, acting the way that they can around it. Um, I, I do believe that when there's a federation in place, obviously they are the ones that are making the decision for the benefit of the players. It is really hard to imagine a bunch of male players asking to remove their coach. That is not something that is normal. So, you know, I think that they need to, to find a way to communicate properly and, and see where that goes. Um, Spain does have the potential of becoming a superpower at the national team level and at the club level as well. Uh, after all, they were the ones that be, like begun this big domino effect. So it would be very uh, saddening to see it tank because of politics. Uh, but, you know, yet again, football and politics have always been very much intertwined. So let's see what it happens, what happens. The next year is a really big one for women's football. You have a World Cup coming uh, July and August of next year with 32 teams, eight more than is previously the case. Um, and you've got another club season uh, you know the the NWSL playoffs are about to start and then in Europe you've got Champions League you've got a lot of stuff happening and so I'm wondering are you expecting in the next year for even new records to be set and to be building off of all of the achievements that we've seen that we just talked about over the past year absolutely this is just the beginning we have seen nothing and every day that goes by, it'll become more and more normal that stadiums that were meant for men are now being filled uh, by fans to watch women. And that will continue to happen in the Champions League. Many teams have already said that uh, their women's team will be playing in, in their main stadiums. So I think that every week that goes by, it's just going to become more and more normal at a, at a very fast pace that we're not used to, uh, especially in football where things are kind of very consistent throughout the years. So it's incredibly exciting, uh, but also 
it, it means that there's a lot of opportunity. We're seeing a ton of new brands on the commercial side supporting women's football and kind of paving and you know a road that was never walked on, right? Uh, we're fashion brands and beauty brands that are now understanding that women's football is a great way to reach women. Um, so I think that there's going to be a lot of change and, uh, and it's going to be fast-paced, but it's all going to be towards, you know, watching a Women's World Cup that will be set another new record, right, um, from the last one. How much do you want to be a, yourself like a public face for women's football? Because you're good at this. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, whether it's with one football or with, I don't know, broadcast stuff in different countries around the world, how much do you want to be out there publicly? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, someone the other day was like, she's the face of women's football. No, I'm not. <laughs> I am definitely not that. Um, I love the sport and I love being a woman and I love that women and the sport are coming together in, in such a great way. Um, I will use my platform, uh, One Football, to push this message as much as I can, for sure. And I know I have their full support to do so. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to have this position, but I believe that there's a lot of other women and men that are doing amazing stuff in the sport and we should all have a voice. Um, that's it. Victoire Kojavina Reynal is the new vice president of women's soccer for One Football. Vicky, thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Vicky Kojavina Reynal as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.